All right, so it looks like we're mostly back. And this is the first day of our August uh, CSA online retreats. So we'll be continuing for the next two weeks. And we're continuing uh, to talk about, look at the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is very much in our uh, spiritual tradition, Kriya Yoga tradition. This was one of the uh, favorite scriptures of Lahiri Mahashaya and uh, also Sri Yukteswar and Paramahansa Yogananda. And each of these would spend many hours uh, in satsang, that is, um, experiences much like we're having, where we they would talk about uh, a line or two from the Gita and discuss that and then continue with the next and answer questions. And so this was very much the way Lahiri Mahashaya taught. This is the way uh, Sri Yukteswar would have seminars and programs, regular classes uh, on a weekly basis where they would discuss the Gita and of course Paramahansa Yogananda as well. So, so this is very much in our tradition and the teaching here is very, uh, very useful. It's very profound. Um, it gives us a great amount of insight into the nature of how the mind and how the mind works, what is the mind, what is consciousness, what is awareness, um, and how we can kind of move our way through the the confusion, the forest of um, uh, impulses and obstacles and addictions and all these things that that confine our awareness that limit us. Um, and so there are so there are just so many wonderful teachings and reminders in here. And on one level, it's a little bit repetitive because um, Krishna, which represents again enlightened consciousness, is repeating uh, one way and an, and another the importance of both uh, disciplined action, intentional action, and also knowledge and wisdom. And so we go back and forth between these two conversations and and in the process, he weaves together an understanding, a beautiful picture of the nature of what we are. When I say we, you know, the, the, our, uh, our essence of being, uh, what we truly are and how to come back to the awareness, how to um, realize that is to have knowledge and experience of what our true nature is so this is a really uh, really profound teaching and a useful way to spend some time um, before we go get back into that uh, i would like to just once again remind us about our spiritual practice of meditation and why we are meditating you know what the uh, what the objective is, because a lot of times people get very confused about um, meditation practice and they make it much more difficult than it needs to be. So it's very, very useful to remember that our meditation practice is simply a technique, a method of allowing us to be our self. That's the self with a capital S. To just be yourself. That's all. We meditate, we sit down quietly, and we let go of everything, all the distractions, all the confusions, everything, all the memories, expectations, 
circumstances and events in the world today and in our home and in our life, whatever is happening, we just let that go for a moment and just be yourself, you know, self with a capital S. And that self is not limited. It's not confined. It never was born. It never dies. It's having this amazing adventure of a lifetime. And, and this is wonderful, but it's very easy to forget that our nature is perfect and pure and already expanded. This is what we are because we've become so identified with this limited point of view with the character and the, and the drama and the action that's going on around us. Uh, we've become so identified and so engrossed and so enchanted by what's happening there that we forget. We forget that I am already amazing, you know, already this divine being that has taken an incarnation in this life in order to have this experience. And so we can be reminded, reminded of our true nature. So we sit to meditate just to be yourself. And whatever techniques, whatever methods we use, this doesn't have to be complicated. Whatever works to help get the attention focused on one point, because when the attention is focused on one point, the mind comes quiet. We're not thinking about something. We're, our consciousness, the container of things that we're thinking about, this empties. So when we don't have anything to think about, when we're not uh, defining ourselves in the context in terms of what's going on around us, what we are doing, what we are aspiring for, desires, uh, expectations, upsets, all fear. Um, when we let all that stuff go, when the container consciousness comes empty, when we experience pure consciousness, super consciousness above normal waking consciousness, then we are free, we are liberated, we are enlightened. And this is our natural condition. So we don't have to work hard to get to what we already are. All we have to do is just kind of, you know, clean the windshield once in a while. So we can rest in the awareness of being to be yourself. And then we come back into the character, we, you know, assume the role, put the uniform on, and we go out and engage and enact and act in the world. And we do so always with this awareness that we are bright, awake, immortal, enlightened already. See? So, you know, we don't have to complicate meditation. All we have to do is use meditation as a, our practice um, <clears throat> as an opportunity to be ourself. And the techniques that we use are just the tools to allow us to have that experience. So uh, oftentimes I have people who are asking questions about, well, you know, I do my exercises and my asanas and then my so many mantras and so many of this. And, you know, and by the time they go through all the techniques and all the things that they have to do, there's no time left to meditate and to sit and meditate. You know, what do you do? And then, and then I was talking. <laughs> my wife reminded me this weekend. She said that uh, she had heard this story, this interview with a, a French monk who had spent uh, quite a bit of time with Ananda Moy Ma. Ananda Moy Ma was a great, great saint in India um, back in the last century, 
And so this monk had spent a lot of time with her. And then after she passed, his intention was to go off and to be a recluse, you know, to go off and be a good yogi and live by himself and out in the forest and engage in these practices in a much more intense way. So, you know, if we're sitting down and doing our 108 Gayatri mantras, it takes time. It takes time, you know. If we, sit, if we sit down and do these, some of these practices that are really a lot more kind of intense and intentional to really get the mind to be totally quiet, to get past all this. So, so and we can do that. So, you know, some of these practices... Um, are very time consuming. And by the time uh, we think about the normal maintenance, what we have to do to take care of the body and then take care of the house and the family and, uh, and something, you know, we have to be able to pay the bills and everything requires maintenance. The body requires maintenance. The house requires maintenance. The car requires maintenance. The cat requires maintenance. So all these things take time, time, time. So, so this monk says, you know, okay, you know, Ananda Moy Ma has passed. My service to her is no, you know, I can't, I can no longer be useful there. There's nothing I need to do in the world, and I'm already a, you know, a monk. And so, so I'll go off and be quiet. And this is very common, especially in India. You know, where when we come to our later years and we say it's time to just go away and be quiet and and really focus on me and focus on the self with the capital S and not have to take all the time for all this maintenance. So this monk in the interview, um, he went off and, and spent several years living alone in the forest. And the interviewer said, well, um, you know, what was it like, you know, what, when you, when you first went out there to do this? And he said, well, I had this, amazing vision you know that i would go out in the forest and i would live on bananas and coconuts you know and not have to worry about uh, what i was going to eat and everything would be fine so he said i went out to the forest and there were no banana trees and there were no coconut trees no bananas no coconuts so <laughs> here we are you know out in the forest and we have to figure out how do we eat and what do we do about the cold and um, so, so I guess the point of all that is that we can complicate things and we can get just as intense as we want with all the disciplines and all the practices, but when it comes right down to it, you know, what we're looking at is waking up, waking up for what we already are. And that doesn't require going off in the forest and it doesn't require, um, anything difficult or anything extreme it just requires that we're patient that we're intentional that we show up and do our practice every day and we continue to be mindful about how we're thinking and how we're acting and how we're feeling and making adjustments along the way so this is not complicated it's very straightforward it requires attention you know requires energy but but it's not difficult and so, and so we can do that. And so, uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, remembering in the Yoga Sutras, in the second chapter of the Yoga Sutras, uh, the second sutra says the reason that we're practicing, the reason that we engage in our practice is in order to experience samadhi, that is oneness consciousness, 
bringing together attention and awareness. Our awareness, we use our attention to focus and our awareness opens to this experience of what we already are, our essence of being, bringing these together. And when these come together, there is an experience that we can't talk about. There's no concept for, but it is this experience of being, existence being. So, so the reason we practice is for that and to remove the obstacles to our free living, to our liberation, to remove that uh, which causes and creates suffering and the suffering and the ignorance is what creates the problems. And so, so whatever we can do to, to um, eradicate, to remove the suffering and the limitations um, is also required for our awakening and for liberation of consciousness. And so this is why we practice. Suffering is, is one of the things that drives, creates all the obstacles and the problems. You know, uh, and again, in the, um, in the Buddhist teaching, in the beginning, the Four Noble Truths, he says, the first thing is dukkha, suffering. Dukkha, suffering. There is suffering. You know, there is suffering. So, you know, if you're alive on the planet and you're running around in a body, there is suffering. So you go to the, you go to the refrigerator and, you know, go to pour the milk and it turns out the milk is sour. Wow. That's suffering. You see, the word dukkha actually, the Sanskrit word dukkha uh, is, comes from two syllables and it means suffering, but actually the word do is bad, and ka was the hole, the axle hole in the chariot. So back in the days when the Aryans were cowboys, they were running around, you know, they had domesticated cattle, and they also had domesticated horses, and and they were nomadic, you know, they were running around, and they would fight, and they had created chariots and carts, and they were pretty cool. Um, and if you had an axle hole that was not perfectly round and wasn't centered, then it would cause the cart to wobble and it would be uncomfortable. Or it would uh, interfere with the wheels being able to turn. So that would be a challenge. Or it would, you know, or the, 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 uh, the fact that it wasn't perfectly made would cause the wheel to break. So, so dukkha meant bad hole bad space. So this was a thing that created discomfort, disease. There's another word in Sanskrit, sukha. Su means good. Sukha means happiness. So there's this wonderful little prayer, uh, loka samasta sukhino bhavantu, may everyone everywhere in the universe be happy. Sukha, happiness. So we can transform our dukkha, that is the wobbly wheel the un the you know the the uh, the axle hold is not made perfectly the place in our life that's wobbly we can transform that into the sukha the one that is made ideally and perfectly so that our life goes smoothly so that the wagon runs down the road without wobbling and the wheels stay on the cart you know so so of dukkha suffering and and then of course he, he went on to say the cause of dukkha the cause of the suffering is trishna which is thirst desire 
the unfulfilled desire. And of course, um, as we read a couple chapters ago in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, if we have desires that are not fulfilled, this leads to frustration. And frustration, when it continues for any time, leads to anger. And anger, when we, when we become angry, then we forget or we don't remember accurately what's going on. And when we forget what's going on and our memory is impaired, then we wander in darkness and delusion. We're, you know, we're out of control. So, so desire to frustration, to anger, to a loss of memory, not thinking clearly, to being confused and running around banging our head on the and so the solution for the thirst, for the desire, for the duke, for the uh, Krishna is Naroda, pacifying, calming, quieting, lessening the need for things, the desires that are coming up, you know, automatically, these impulses and urges and habits. And, and so, and then, and then the final, the fourth of the, the Four Noble Truths was there is a solution there is a way to pacify, to quiet down, and that is through practice. So, and so here we are. This is, you know, where we start off. And, and then I think it's uh, also useful to go back and to be reminded once again of the metaphor of the Bhagavad Gita. And so I know most of us have been, been through this already, uh, but it's always good, I think, to kind of set the tone, set the stage and, and be reminded of the characters in the play because it's has such a, a profound influence and impact on and in relationship to our own personal self, to what we are. And so, so we have in the story of the Bhagavad Gita, as it begins, we have these two clans, we have the two different uh, relatives, related families. And on one side we have, uh, uh, king Dhritarashtra, who was the blind king, and his son, main, you know, the main uh, regent, the main person who's really running the kingdom because Dhritarashtra is an old man and he's blind. And so Duryodhana, his son, is kind of the guy that's out there on the, on the, on the turf running the kingdom. And on the other hand, we have the Pandavas, and the Pandavas are... Uh, five brothers. The five brothers represent the five chakras. So, Dhritarashtra, blind king, is the mind. He represents the mind. And even in the story, in the Bhagavad Gita, um, the story is actually being told to Dhritarashtra by Sanjaya. That's his intuition. So, the mind, this blind mind, has no direct connection with the world, has no direct connection with its kingdom. It is sitting here in the brain. Actually, the mind and brain are they're two parts of one thing. We can think of the brain as the computer, as the hardware, and the mind as the software. So we have the mind-brain, and this mind-brain is isolated from reality. It is... You know, it, it's the mind brain is actually stuck inside of the head, so it doesn't ever get to go out and walk around and smell the flowers and see the sun. But it has 
reporters, it has senses that are feeding information back into it all the time. And so the senses are feeding the mind, which is, again, clueless. It just takes the input and then it processes the input and, and you know, responds in some way. So we have, we have Dhritarashtra, blind mind, and then we have Duryodhana, and Duryodhana represents, the sun represents these impulses, the impulses of the senses, um, without any control, without any uh, morals or ethics, uh, and the impulses, they're not all bad, but there are a hundred of them. He has a hundred siblings, 99 siblings. So there are all these uh, addictions, habits, urges, karmas, all this stuff in the background that impulses that drive us to do one thing and another. Um, Old habits that we've accumulated, you know, many, many years ago. Um, And and these things that sort of drive us and push us around. And so this this is all all represented by uh, Dhritarashtra, Duryodhana, and all the things on this one side of the, the of this battle that's about to happen. On the other side of the battle, the Pandava brothers, they represent the five chakras, and this is our spiritual awakening. This is our own essence of being. And our essence of being, our spiritual nature, is, is in the beginning, is feeling a conflict with its expressive nature with the senses and the mind and what's going on in the world around it. And there seems to be a conflict. There seems to be a conflict between the urges and impulses that come up naturally and this impulse to be awake and to be conscious and to be mindful. And it seems that these can't work together, that there's a, that there's a problem. And so this problem begins or the, the uh, exploration of this problem begins the Bhagavad Gita. And so our Pandava brothers, the, uh, again, the five chakras begin at the base chakra. This is the root chakra is grounding, is represented, is uh, associated with the earth element, solidity, structure. Nakula is the, the Pandava brother that is associated with the, with the first chakra. And this is the level where one would be operating um, in, in a very basic structural level. So we come, come into this plane, we come into this planet, we have to figure out how to get around, how to make sense of the world, and what we see and touch and taste and feel. These things are all what, what our reality is made of, and we don't go much beyond that. So we are in this very grounded, very basic uh, foundational aspect of our consciousness and of our life and so and this is a a very important thing we have to have a good foundation before we can build on that and so so the first chakra the structure the grounding um, is represented by the brother nakula and then sahadeva uh, the second chakra this is where when one wakes up to here where we're talking about the being associated with the water element and here we're talking about beginning to uh, perceive that there is more going on than just this physical reality, that there is something more subtle, there are energies at play, that there are uh, things happening that are outside of our complete 
understanding or control and that we have to somehow figure out how to cooperate with. So oftentimes one that's working at the second chakra level um, can become superstitious and, um, you know, and, um, and also emotionally attached, you know, the water element is associated with emotions. And so we become much more, we can become much more emotional and much more, uh, much more attachment. And, and so then we progress up to the third chakra, which is Arjuna. And Arjuna is the hero of our story. And Arjuna represents the third chakra re related to the fire element. And so Arjuna represents fiery self-will. And here we have, uh, number one, the awareness that, you know, we have some control and that this, that these energies and these powers and these things that we have become aware of at the second chakra level, now we can have some control over, we can manipulate, we can have some power and we can begin to exert our own self. So at the third chakra level, one be, starts to become goal oriented and willful and intentional and so and much more direct <clears throat> excuse me much more directed and so this is where arjuna is so arjuna is fiery self-will and the seeking soul he is now at this point where aware of the fact that he has power and he is the, the kind of the general for the pandavas uh, leading the army he has power and he has the ability to direct it and he has on one hand this sense of um, connection, awakening, coming into this awareness that there's more going on here than just manipulating and moving power around, moving energy around. Um, and so this is the place where our conflict begins. And then the other, the other uh, uh, Pandava brothers, Bhima, is uh, associated with the heart chakra and, the, and one who wakes up into the heart chakra begins to be aware of the connection with other individuals and with the rest of life. So rather than being an individual who is aspiring to accomplish, now one wakes up and recognizes, gosh, I'm really part of the wholeness of this reality. I'm part of the environment. I'm not separate. Every individual is really part of me and I am part of them. There's no way to even conceive of the separation that I felt before because it's, it's not real. It's an illusion. And so the heart center becomes the one where, um, where Bhima, who represents strength, power, this is where prana, this is the place where energy and life force really comes from and is directed. And so here's Bhima and then uh, the throat chakra, the fifth chakra, Yudhisthira, and Yudhisthira is wisdom, knowledge. So we move from, we move through these, these levels in awakening and consciousness. We move through these levels of, um, of awareness. We become aware of ourself and our ability to be intentional and accomplish our goals and accomplish our purposes. Then we wake up and we recognize that we're all in this together. So my purposes better line up with everybody else's purposes in order to create harmony and for me to be fulfilled and prosperous and feel good and to be able to support life. So, so now I wake up to the heart level and then in the process, the next thing is to do this with wisdom. So, so first we are, 
impelled to be interactive and engaged. And then the next thing is we we really create or we really access our own discernment and discrimination in the way that we're acting and engaging. So we feel part of everything, but now we can do this with much with, with very focused, directed attention because we are using our discernment and discrimination. So this is this is this awakening. So these are the five Pandava brothers, and there is this spiritual connection that within us, our soul nature, our essence of being, has this innate impulse to be awake. It wants to it wants to experience, it is experiencing through this life, but it wants to do so mindfully and consciously. So it's sort of like we have to, you know, we have to get into the vehicle and learn the controls and figure out how it all works. And along the way, the figuring out how it all works becomes so engaging that we forget that we got in this vehicle to go someplace. And now here we are and we're, you know, running down the road at 90 miles an hour. And all of a sudden we start to realize, wow, you know, there is more than just running down the road and controlling this vehicle. There is more here. I am have this greater awareness. And so we allow that to then be, be the important thing. We don't stop living and engaging, but we can live and engage much more mindfully. But in the beginning, when this starts off, there is this, you know, this question that comes up, and that is, well, what do I have to, you know, what's the cost? What is it going to cost me in order to start to engage? What is it, What am I going to lose out on when I begin to, to focus on my spiritual development? And, you know, what am I going to lose along the way with respect to the sensory input and memories and experiences and all of these things that I've come to really be quite engaged with and quite fall quite, you know, deeply in love with. Um, so what's going to happen? And so when we begin the, begin the story of the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna has asked his chariot driver, and this is, and this is Krishna. So Arjuna, again, the seeking soul, Krishna is enlightened consciousness. This is our own higher consciousness, our own higher awareness the dialogue is between us as wanting to be awake, wanting to be liberated, wanting to be free of suffering, wanted, wanting to be free of all the upsets and anxiety and fear and worry and all this regrets, all this stuff, to let all that go so we can just be as we're designed to be. So, so here's the dialogue between this level of self, the third chakra, Arjuna, and higher enlightened consciousness, our own self, and the chariot that is driven is represents the body, and the five horses that are pulling the chariot represent the senses, and the flag of power of power. We are we're under the power of Hanuman. Hanuman represents prana, energy, life force. And so here we are in our chariot, this body that is powered by prana, by life force and driven by supreme consciousness and the the seeking soul arjuna us are sitting here between these two opposing apparently seemingly opposing sides which is the mind and the senses the blind mind and the senses on one hand and our own spiritual awakening and uh, empowerment on the other hand 
and and again as the bhagavad-gita begins arjuna says i don't i don't want to do this i can't i can't imagine killing everything has been important to me in my life you know i don't want to destroy my teachers um bishma who's the great teacher who was who taught everybody on their side and everybody on our side we're all cousins um there's no winning this battle and so so we begin our our discussion we begin the bhagavad-gita by um krishna beginning to explain to arjuna this is what's happening so the first chapter was the, the the desperation of Arjuna, you know, he has given up. I don't know what to do. I'm looking at this. There's it's a no win situation. And then the second chapter, um, he's he finally, you know, opens up enough to to ask the question, what to do? I don't know what to do. I give up. And so then enlightened consciousness can begin to uh teach, can begin to enlighten and give him the the coaching, the information that he needs to be able to begin to see his way through what seems to be a problem and really isn't and has never been, never, ever been. And so, and so, and then, so then we go through and, and uh, in the first chapter, I mean, the second chapter, Krishna uh, explains the nature of reality, sort of Samkhya philosophy this is what's going on. You think you were born, but you were never born. You never die. You know, you are always what you are. And everyone else is also the same. I, the enlightened consciousness, um, exists in all forms and all people. It's, it's, it's the only thing that's going on. And so you think you're killing something, but it's all just an act, a play of consciousness. Everything is this beautiful... Um, dream of God or this beautiful play of God, Leela. And so, so Krishna explains this to Arjuna and then, and so he's got Arjuna's attention now. And so then as we go through the next couple of chapters, uh, the third and fourth chapter, we start to discuss um, approaches to this awakening, to understanding. And he talks about the path of, of knowledge coming into the, to the knowledge, the awareness of what's happening and using wisdom. And then he talks about the path of action. So he says, this is, you know, we, there are, here are things that you can do. And because you're in the world, if you're alive in the world, then you have to act. You, you have to take care of maintenance. You have to take care of the cat and the body and then the stuff, you know? So, so if you're here on the planet, you're going to have to act and we can use our action consciously, mindfully, um, intentionally to be able to also wake up. So, so this is where we, we, where we left off, uh, last time in chapter four. And, um, and I'm only going to just, just briefly begin because our time is already short, but in the beginning of chapter five, and by the way, as we go, as we finish up today, just in the next few minutes, and as we go through uh, the program the rest of the week, if you have questions, um, feel free to ask the questions when the question comes up. You don't have to wait till the end. And uh, and I don't always see when they pop up on the little chat thing over here immediately. I'll, I mean, I do look from time to time. Um, so you can just unmute yourself and go, what about this? So that we can 
so we can um, handle the questions when they come up, you know, and have this as more of a satsang, more of a little dialogue and be appropriate to, to what everybody's needs is. And it's good. For, it'll be good for me and good for you. So, and check. yes. Question. Okay, good. Um, I was thinking there is only one consciousness. There is no difference between Arjuna and Krishna because the consciousness is the same. So, what is the role of Krishna? I mean, what is the consciousness of Krishna as is not separate from Krishna consciousness? I don't know if I explained it well. Well, Krishna, the, Krishna is represents our own consciousness that's awake, our own awareness. So this is this is Krishna. Krishna is awareness, pure awareness, pure consciousness from which, within which, all knowledge and all uh, intuition, everything emerges, comes from this. Arjuna is the place where we as a soul, where we are identified with a limited point of view, we think that we are this separate limited being. So this is this, this is the place where we're stuck. We've become enchanted. It's like being under a spell, a magic spell has been cast and we have forgotten. We just forgot that we are already perfect and already pure and already conscious and already aware. So this aspect of ourself is, is, is the Krishna aspect and the limited enchanted under the spell aspect is the one that we're coming from the viewpoint that we're coming from. And the whole, the whole dialogue, the whole process is one of allowing this limited point of view to wake up, to re-experience itself in this larger context. Does that help? Does that make sense? I was thinking, yeah, a lot, but um, my question was more, the consciousness is the same. So Krishna, so Arjuna consciousness, from which point of view he talks? He talks like as our, um, our consciousness that is already whole, that is trying to um, bring himself back to wholeness, or is our, it's just that, I, I don't get who is the one who is trying to become Krishna, as we already are Krishna. So who is mm. our Okay, it's a good, it's a good question, and this is, and it's very useful to, to contemplate these things, to think about this. So again, the Arjuna represents this part of ourself that is not liberated, that is not free. Here we are, we're having this conversation. And if we're having this conversation, and if there's any, any little piece of something in your awareness, in your consciousness, that feels constrained, that feels limited, that feels confused, that um, isn't sure about what to do next. That, so if there's any little piece in there or, or, if, or there are habits or addictions or, or, or moods, emotions that come up that seem to be out of control, all, if all any of these things happen, 
then we go, wow, you know, what's happening here? I am stuck. I am trapped in this limited consciousness, but it has all these impulses. It has all these things. That's Arjuna. And at the same time, Arjuna is rec- rec- recognizing that, there, that that's not all of reality, that we're not limited to that. So as long as we are coming from a place where we feel constricted, we feel limited, we feel driven, we feel victimized, we feel any of these things, as long as this is where we're coming from, we're Arjuna. And, and, but there is this, you know, from time to time, the clouds part. And the sun shines through and all of a sudden it's like, wow, you know, for a moment there, everything was perfect. I experienced this wholeness, this, this beingness. Wow. So I know it's available. I know that's happening. So, so there is this impulse that is constantly calling us to be awake, but we're stuck in this enchantment. And how do we break the spell? How do we has everybody seen The Wizard of Oz? Wonderful movie. And in The Wizard of Oz, our, our hero Dorothy is, you know, on her way to the Emerald City to get to the wizard and, you know, find her way home again. And and the Wicked Witch of the West, who is trying to, you know, come across purposes, she wants her slippers, her magic slippers, so she gets very close to the Emerald City and there's a big field of poppies. And the Wicked Witch of the West goes, ah, I know, I'll, I'll cast a spell on the poppies to put them to sleep. And so as, the, as our band of heroes, Dorothy and the Tin Woodsman and the Cowardly Lion and, the, and the, the Scarecrow go into the field of poppies, they all fall under the spell and they fall asleep. Sleeping, 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 see? And then, fortunately, Glinda, the good witch of the north, comes along and goes, oh, this is not acceptable. And so she sends some rain to wash away the, the magic spell from the poppies and to wake them up. And so we're looking for the rain. You know, we just have to sit there and be quiet and allow this natural grace, this natural you know, Dorothy couldn't make it rain. She couldn't wake herself up. She was enchanted. But Grace comes along and says, it's okay. It's no problem. If we're just patient and if we just align ourselves, attune ourselves, then the rain comes, washes the spell away, and gradually we wake up, we wake up, and ah, here we are again. See? So, um, so I, I, hopefully that helps a little bit, but it's good to think about these things, you know. So, was that good? Thank you. Uh, for, for now. <coughs> Hi, Ron. Yes. I wanted to say something. Hello. Yes, yes. Um, what I wanted to say from what you explained, the way I think about it is, kind of like Arjuna being like muddied water and Krishna being like purified water. So mm-hmm. in the Arjuna state, it's kind of like the water is muddied and through meditation and our practice, it's kind of like pouring in more pure water so it purifies to become Krishna. 
So in effect, although it's the same thing, one is muddied or bled, covered, and then through practice, it purifies to become what it really should be. Mm-hmm. Is that what it is, right? Except I would make I would, my metaphor, I would have one little difference. Instead of pouring right. water in to make it clear, mm-hmm. I would just let it sit. If you okay. let the muddy water sit, eventually all the, all the sediment settles out and then the water is clear. Okay. But we don't have to do anything. We just have to sit, sit, see, and then it automatically clears by itself. And this, thank is, you. this is our meditation. Good. So thank you. That, thank you for that. Okay. Well, uh, yes. I actually have a question for you about, you use grace a lot. Where in the Gita does it actually talk about grace? I don't perceive that as part of the Gita. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Oh. Yeah. So as part of, as, as part of the Gita, talking about grace directly? Yeah, I don't see grace mentioned ever in the Gita anywhere. It's all self work i don't perceive any sort of force called grace that comes in and helps us at least not in the gita yeah well it it, it doesn't it, it doesn't describe it in those terms it doesn't describe it in what we think of as grace but but krishna enlightened consciousness says i am the i am that which supports everything i am that which expresses as everything i am in everything as everything there is nothing that is not me there is nothing that's separate there's nothing that outside that's outside you think you're separate you think there's a problem you think there's that there are challenges but as soon as you come to this awareness of me of consciousness of this enlightened consciousness then you also come into the awareness that everything is automatically provided. He's, I mean, Krishna says in this, if you, you do nothing, I do nothing and nothing remains undone. This is what he says. This is grace. I, I you know, this individualized being um, that is operating through this mind and through this body, I am not separate from anything. And if I follow, you know, what Krishna is saying here, if I follow what the Gita says, then he says, don't be attached to the results of your actions. Don't worry about what's going to happen next. Just do what you have to do. Do what you are, do what you need to do, do what you are inspired to do, and just do it. Do it because it needs to be done, because it's given to you to do. And if you do that, everything works out everything's taken care of it's all done that's grace grace means that things are working constantly to support and nurture and care for us it's it's woven into the system there is there is an order in this expressive universe and an intelligence that is inherent in it it's not it's not separate it's not being administered it's it, it's it's uh uh, it's evolutionary. It's uh, it's organic. It, it organically unfolds out of itself. Order, and intelligence, and nurturing, and this is grace. So, so all Krishna is saying is, you know, if you get your ego, that is the sense that you're separate, the sense that you're outside of this whole process. If you get that out of the way, and you just act, you do 
what you were impelled to do consciously, mindfully, make a useful contribution. Don't be hung up on the senses. Don't be hung up and don't be controlled by the gunas, you know, the force of the tamas and rajas and sattvas, all these things that, that have a tendency to push things around. We can be above that. And when we're above that, and we're no longer being uh, pushed around by the impulses and by circumstances and events and all that, everything just works. It just works. That's grace. So, so while he doesn't talk about grace in, in you know, Western terms, uh, the basic concept, the basic idea, the understanding is definitely there. I mean, that's the way I see it. Does that help? Thank you. All right, good. So uh, tomorrow we will get into Chapter 5, the Yoga of Renunciation. So um, that's good enough for today. There's no other questions. Thank you all for your attention and time and opportunity to be together and go out there and be joyful. Thank you, Ron. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.